Broadcasting live from Forward Observer Central Command in Austin, Texas. It's the man always out front on the issues. You're listening to Out Front with Samuel Culver. And good afternoon and welcome to Out Front with Samuel Culper. I'm your host, Samuel Culper, and I'm coming to you live from Forward Observer Central Command here in Austin, Texas. Now, probably more than ever, it is important to get our facts straight. I'm going to talk about the Chetniks, but first I just have to tell you this story. So I just got a group email earlier this morning. I, got, I was in this group email uh, about an acquaintance of mine who's also a relatively well-known figure. Uh, the, the email stated that he had died. Relatively well-known in this community. You've probably heard his name before. Committed suicide at age 55. And it was hard to wrap my brain around. And I I emailed back. I said, I said has, has this been confirmed? There's a link to an article which mentions his death from a, a fairly prominent source. And I said, you know, this link sounds pretty official, but I haven't seen anything anywhere else. Is is this for sure? I mean, are we sure about this? And I texted a friend of mine named John who works for this guy who committed suicide. And I was trying to confirm or deny his death. And, you know, this is something, especially over text message, I don't know that it can be done tactfully, but I was I did not lead. I was very tactical. I just said, hey, I heard something may have happened to him. Like, is, is he all right? I didn't ask if he was all right. I just asked, hey, have you heard if something has happened to him? And John said that he didn't, he hasn't heard anything, and that, as a matter of fact, he had spoken with him recently. And John asked me, well, what did you hear? And I didn't want to tell him. I felt bad because maybe... Maybe he didn't know. And I certainly was not going to be the guy to tell him. So I started digging. And I got a couple of articles into this research. And I finally figured out that there was, a, in fact, a man, a prominent figure, a professor, actually, uh, who had recently committed suicide. A completely different guy, same name. And we've all been here before you get an email or someone tells you something that is is incorrect for whatever reason maybe they maybe they just want to be the first person to get it out there they want to be the person to tell everybody or maybe maybe they heard it in passing they haven't really looked into it and they're just passing it on or maybe someone reliable told them this piece of information and they're passing it on to you as a fact i mean this happens all the time but in intelligence we just don't have the luxury of being able to pass on information. We have to judge its veracity. Is this true? Did this really happen? We have to confirm or deny this information before we pass it on. At least I that's how I feel. Think of an intelligence well, think of a good intelligence analyst like being a fuel filter for your vehicle. You drive up to a gas station and you start pumping gas into the tank. Yeah, that's intelligence gathering. That's re- threat reporting streams or intelligence streams coming in. And a good filter 
once that gets into the gas tank, good, bad, or ugly information doesn't matter. That gets put into the gas tank. And a good a good fuel filter is supposed to catch any debris or particulates in that fuel so that it, it doesn't end up clogging your engine. We're not trying to fire these cylinders on this on this bad fuel or this bad information. When I say intelligence drives the fight, I want to make sure as the intelligence analyst that I'm that I am only putting high octane fuel into our engine. Because the vehicle that we are driving is called operations. And on the upside, we can't start acting on bad information or bad intelligence because the folks on the intelligence side didn't verify the intelligence before passing it on. And maybe you don't have the same commitment when it comes to passing on information. But I can tell you that a little due diligence on my part has allowed me on numerous occasions to tamp down on rumors and misinformation and probably some disinformation. I don't know how many times, more than a few. I haven't been counting. And when we get to the unpleasantness, this coming unpleasantness, whatever it ends up being exactly, our ability to filter out poor information or wrong or is, or misleading information could impact our security. Now, I want to encourage you, when you do get information like that, especially since we're talking about community security here and using intelligence to help inform our decision-making during these emergencies, I want to encourage you to have the same commitment to how you look at information. Let me tell you this real-world example very briefly. It was back in 2018. We are helping this helping uh, this uh, nonprofit group called uh, uh, Cajun Navy Relief. And they had search and rescue teams. And they went to, they were in North Carolina during Hurricane Florence. This is in the fall of 2018. And they're in this town called Lumberton. And you know, they're pulling people like out of their, out of knee deep water, out of their homes. They're, you know, getting people out of, of these areas. They've become stranded or they didn't escape or whatever. They could, for whatever reason, they didn't evacuate. And so these search and rescue teams after the, after the hurricane went through, they, they went in there immediately and started pulling people out, like single moms with kids and stuff. And there was a period of time, by the way, we were, I was heading up an effort along with some pretty amazing volunteers, heading up an effort to provide them with real-time intelligence on what was going on in the area. So we did a lot of things for them. But one of the, one of the things that happened was on um, there was a, a city councilman in that part of in the city there in, in North Carolina that was talking about a dam that was about to, he was talking about a, a dam failure, and he was telling people that they have to leave the area because there's going to be a dam failure. And that was passed over to me, the intel guy. And they said, Sam, I, have you heard anything about this dam failure? Because, you know, obviously, if so, they got to get their guys out of there. And I said, you know, I, I don't remember seeing a dam when I was looking at the maps before uh, before the deployment. And I, I don't remember, there's there's not a dam in that entire county. 
And so I got on the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers website and I looked up. Sure enough, there was no dam. I, there was no dam there. They, they, these guys hold a, a database of all, all dams in the United States. There's no dam there. I said, hey, what is this guy talking about? Well, I get online. And he's talking about a, a levee that had been built by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers um, on the river there. And it turns out that it was not about to fail. It was being breached by like a half an inch of water. Okay, so a little bit of water was spilling over the top of this levee. Uh, otherwise, no indication that this levee was just about to, like New Orleans, just like blow wide open and, you know, let this uh, tsunami of water flood into the city. And so, yeah, we they could have acted on it. Had I not been there, who knows? They may have stopped their search and rescue operations. They may have ordered everybody out. Get out, come back, get out of the way, wait for this thing to, to breach, and then, you know, wait for this dam to explode and then and then maybe we can go back in there and finish cleaning up but guys due diligence we we have to confirm or deny information it's important especially on the ops side if you're an intelligent if you're an intelligence guy you are advising the operation side of what the current conditions are what the current threat level is what the enemy is doing what the battlefield looks like what the battle space looks like and if we are providing them with poor information, then operations are going to be disrupted. By the way, this show is brought to you by the Intel Boot Camp, an accelerated online learning platform for tactical intelligence skills. During emergencies, we're going to have blind spots that only intelligence gathering can solve. Intel Boot Camp contains 30 lessons on intelligence gathering, analysis, battle tracking, gear selection, organizing your Intel team, and a whole lot more you can sign up at www.intelbootcamp.com. By the way, that's why we don't have as advertisers on the show, because I'm the advertiser. Now, on yesterday's show, I talk, I said that I said that I thought a a two-sided civil war, left versus right. I said I I don't think that's likely. It's not impossible. I just don't see there only being two sides to this thing. What we're probably going to see is a multi-sided, low-intensity conflict. I mean, you look at how many tribes and how many ideologies there are in the country. America is a very diverse place. It's a very geographically and ideologically, culturally diverse place. There's way more than two sides on this thing. I think two sides is just a, a very massive oversimplification, and it's wrong. It's going to be a multi-sided, low-intensity conflict because there are going to be a lot of people who have different objectives, people who want different things, who are going to be active in this low-intensity conflict. And, you know, it reminded me of, it uh, reminded me of the fight in Yugoslavia during World War II and shortly thereafter. Um, initially between the Nazis, uh, the, the Serbian nationalist group called the Chetniks, and Tito and these communist partisans. And a few years ago, I, I wrote an article about some lessons learned because I'd, I'd read this, I'd read about the Chetniks in part of a book, and I took some notes and I, um, I reflected on what I learned. So, in the first week of April 1941, uh, Adolf Hitler ordered his Nazi army to invade Yugoslavia, or, or ordered some element of his army 
to invade Yugoslavia. About 11 days later, the, the, the king of Yugoslavia, his name is Peter II, he'd fled into exile. Within 11 days of this invasion, he went into exile to escape this Nazi invasion. And his military leaders that remained in Yugoslavia, they capitulated um, for the most part. Some part of the Yugoslav military there, the Serbian nationalists, they escaped into the mountains. So they escaped the Nazis. And when Hitler decided to begin Operation Barbarossa, going into the Soviet Union, sporadic acts of violence started to break out in Yugoslavia by these Chetnik guerrillas. They were in absolute revolt against the Nazis. The Nazis who had come in occupied this area, the Serbia, the Serbian part of Yugoslavia. And the Serbian nationalists were poorly armed in ones and twos and small groups. These guerrillas started ambushing Nazi guards and Nazi patrols, similar to what was going on in Denmark and uh, the Netherlands and some other places, uh, or at least the Netherlands. I don't know how well it happened in Denmark. Yeah, yeah, it happened in Denmark as well. And they started stealing the weapons of these. They, they would go kill a Nazi officer. They'd go ambush some Nazi guards. They'd take their weapons, take whatever they could. And then they would use those weapons for new attacks. That's how you turn a, that's how you turn a, a single pistol into an arsenal, essentially. And the response by the Nazis was absolutely brutal. Every time there was a guerrilla attack, the Nazis would go out and they would just round up a bunch of Serbians randomly, and they started executing them. Like, they've executed thousands of Serbians, thousands of Serbs, for these guerrilla attacks on these Nazi uh, troops. 200,000 Serbs were rounded up and deported during this period of time. Because the Nazis, they were trying to defeat this uh, insurgency, essentially. They are trying to, to defeat these guerrillas... And so they just started deporting and killing a bunch of Serbs. And so the Serbs, they kind of started to realize, like, hey, we actually need to organize this. It, it can't just be in ones and twos. We, we actually have to have a real resistance campaign. And they went from destroying bridges and, and raiding convoys, and they built a sustained, organized resistance movement, a national resistance movement. There's a guy named... Colonel Mihailovic. Actually, I had a Serb correct me on that one day. I was on a cruise, of all places, just briefly. I was on a cruise, and this guy, he's got this name tag, and he, he's from Serbia. And I say, oh, do you do you know about Mihailovic? And he says, no, it is Mihailovic. I said, well, I thought that's what I said. Apparently it wasn't. And so there's this guy named Colonel Draja Mihailovic. And he formed this 30-man Chetnik resistance group. And the Chetniks was a, a name, they were named after the 19th century guerrilla group called Chetas, Chetas, um, who, who resorted to guerrilla warfare against the Turkish invaders. So these were the, these were just the new, the new Chetniks, essentially. Most of the Chetniks were Christian Serbs, Serbian, they in this period of mourning, they grew their hair out long. They grew their, their beards, beards out for 40 days as this period of mourning for their, the loss of their nation and also the loss of their freedom. 
because they lived in Nazi Serbia now, or Nazi Yugoslavia. Well, Mihailovic, he'd fought in the mountains of western Serbia during World War I, and he knew that this this area would be the perfect place to base a, uh, a guerrilla movement. That He knew these mountains were going to be an excellent place to start launching guerrilla attacks against the Nazis. And it had rough terrain, so it was, it was very difficult for the Nazis to get back up into these mountains to try to chase the Chetniks out of there. And um, these mountains were also close to, to rail lines. So they were, uh, the guerrillas were able to strike these shipments that were coming in, these supplies that were coming in from, the, from Germany and other places, these large supply depots, uh, depots sending this stuff into Yugoslavia. So this is where he trained his guerrilla fighting force. And he took, uh, he took peasants, uh, civilians, and he trained them up into a, a guerrilla force. And this is, you know, there's a lot, there, we talk about the French resistance and uh, a lot of the, a lot of the in, indigenous or nationalist militias and forces that, that started, uh, started resistance movements against the Nazis. Well, this was the, the fir- probably the first organized guerrilla fighting group in Europe in World War II. So what would happen is now that these guys were getting organized, they've, they've been trained up, they would start conducting these large-scale attacks against the Nazis. And in return, the Nazis would come into these areas and do large-scale retribution. Like I said, they were deporting people, they are executing these Serbs. And so Mihailovic, in response, he said, well, instead of doing these massive large-scale attacks, because that, all that's going to do is bring the Nazis in. We're going to do these smaller, quicker attacks, and we're going to harass the Nazis, and we're going to weaken them to the point that the Serbs could eventually rise up in mass and, and liberate themselves. The Chetniks were immensely successful in doing this. They sabotaged Nazi supply and communications line, communication lines. They really hampered what the Nazis were doing there. And by the way, this is this is only five months after the invasion. This is the fall of 1941, uh, when by the, this is you know five months later, Mihailovic had had done this. And probably in one of my favorite stories, all of, all throughout World War II, Mihailovic actually made contact contact with Allied forces. He he went around. He told all his guys to go out and get these flashlight batteries, and he strung 500 batteries together to build a power supply with enough power to use a radio transmitter. And he actually made contact with either the British SOE or maybe the Americans somewhere. And that is when they, that's when the Brits, the SOE and the Jedburgh teams, the American Jeds, that's when they really realized like, hey, we have a guerrilla commander here that we can work with. And at that time, the Chetniks were about 5,000 strong. So not a huge force, but still 5,000. That's a, that's a ton of dudes. And that's when Mihailovic became recognized as the leader of resistance forces within Yugoslavia. Well, uh, Hitler got tired of hearing about all the, about the, the problems that were going on in, in Yugoslavia. And so he said... Uh, it was either Hitler or one of the commanders there in Yugoslavia. He said, I want 100 Yugoslavians killed for every one Nazi soldier who dies by the hands of these guerrillas. And the strategy here is to not just deter future attacks against, against the Nazi occupation, 
but also to deny the guerrillas the support, uh, the food and the intelligence and maybe the transportation that they had from the populace. Because you start killing civilians and now all of a sudden you are weakening the auxiliary or underground part of this insurgency, of the Chetnik insurgency. On the 20th of October, 1941, Nazi forces went to two towns. They went to uh, Kralahevo, and they killed, uh, I don't know, somewhere between, you know, maybe 2,000 to 6,000 Yugoslavians. They just, they killed them all, just executed thousands of Serbs for a guerrilla attack that had a, that killed around 30 Nazi soldiers. So the Chetniks launched a guerrilla attack that killed 30 Nazi soldiers in this raid. And then the Nazis came in and they killed somewhere between like 2,000 and 6,000 Yugoslavians. The very next day, the Nazis came back to the area. They went to a different town called, I don't know, Krajujevac, something like that. They murdered, uh, they executed somewhere between 2,300 and 7,000 additional Serbs for an attack uh, that killed about 10 Nazi troops. So they killed maybe up to 7,000 over the death of 10 Nazi troops. And in each case, the Nazis, they spared enough people to ensure, they spared enough, spared enough Serbs that, that there were enough Serbians left who could dig holes and bury all these people who had died in these pretty incredible massacres. And the after those two events, Mihailovic, he kind of started to grow reluctant to continue his guerrilla operations against the Nazis. He said, quote, It is far better that my men should stay at home, work on the land, and look after their weapons if they have them. When the time comes for us to rise, we will rise, end quote. Basically saying that, basically saying that, hey, it's better that we, that we have enough Serbians even the peasants, that we have enough people to rise up against the Nazis, that is worth more than, con than continuing these guerrilla operations. Well, Mihailovic was just one commander at that point in time, and these guerrilla attacks continued. And so the Nazis, they began a full-scale, they had like 50,000 troops. They started this full-scale invasion of the countryside and uh, into the mountains to try to root out these guerrilla forces. In addition, the Nazis also went after the communist partisans. So there was a guy named Tito that led the partisans in Yugoslavia. Fairly big historical figure in this part of the world around this time. And due to this invasion, uh, the Nazis they were essentially able to, to eradicate a lot of these guerrilla campaigns. So the, the guerrilla campaigns had stopped. The Nazis, they, they crushed the partisans. They went and crushed the Chetniks as well. And um, and they started flushing these guys out of the mountains. But they did not catch Mihailovic. They also did not catch Tito. And so Hitler put a $40,000 bounty on each of their uh, uh, captures. Writing, writing later, Mihailovic talked about what this was like, what it was like seeing his Serbian countrymen be killed by the thousands for these guerrilla attacks. He wrote, quote, When it was over, and with God's help, I was preserved to continue the struggle, I resolved that I would never again bring such misery on the country 
unless it could result in total liberation. When the day comes for us to rise, we will rise. End quote. After the Nazis did this, Mihailovich sent home most of his men. He kept a, a small detachment who, who stayed back in the mountains. And some of those fighters went and joined a militia. Um, basically, this they were trying to set up kind of like a Vichy Yugoslavia. There was a, a Serb general who started this militia, and then the, the Germans, the Nazi Germans, started backing this general because they wanted to install him kind of as a, a puppet leader, a puppet dictator of Yugoslavia. And he, Mihailovich, thought this was actually a good thing because he writes about the strategy that he called uses of the enemy. And that's basically where he would trade temporary cooperation with this German-backed Serbian militia in order to get long-term gain. So by kind of supporting this, Mihailovic said, look, we can continue to collect intelligence on the Nazis because this militia will be working in and around kind of with the Nazis. Um, and then we can also go back to fighting uh, fighting the communists because now the, there's the communists and the, these Christian Serbs who are kind of both battling the Nazis, but they kind of know ultimately once the Nazis leave or if they're able to defeat the Nazis, they're going to have to fight each other for control of Yugoslavia, at least for control of Serbia. And so by basically kind of calling off attacks on the Nazis, Mihailovic says, well, we can just go and fight the communists now because we're going to have to kill these guys anyway or they're going to kill us and take over. And that's this is kind of when Mihailovic started seeing the communists as like the real enemy especially after the war. Mihailovic, after he made contact with the Allies, he really thought that um, that the Allies were going to come in and they were going to help, uh, help him fight off the Nazis. And then once the Nazis were, were defeated, then he would really set his sights on the communists. Well, by the way, Mihailovic was on the cover of New York Times magazine and uh, for for this, for making contact with the Allies, and it was kind of this thing at the time, you know, the the Allies were celebrating because they had a a reliable guerrilla leader in Yugoslavia against the Nazis. Well, the problem is that ultimately the communist partisans began to take the upper hand in the fighting, and. Uh, the strategy of Mihailovich called the uses of the enemy. Um, he actually started kind of working with these Nazis in order to defeat the communists. Once the Allies caught wind that Mihailovich was kind of working with the Nazis to defeat the communists, the Allies decided that they could not partner with a force that was more or less allied with the Nazis, and so they started supporting the communist partisans. At one point, Mihailovich flat out tells a British officer that fighting the communists was his chief duty, followed by fighting the Nazis. And the British and the Americans did not really like that. Well, eventually the communist partisans ended up taking the lead. And this is the real, man, this is the real tragedy for the Chetniks. 
as soon as the Nazis, the Nazis started to withdraw because the Soviet Red Army was en route to Yugoslavia. The Nazis, I mean, they had killed maybe hundreds of thousands of Serbs throughout this period of time. And by the time that Mihailovic was ready to call for national mobilization against the Nazis and against the communists, he was able, uh, unable to garner enough support. There had been so many Serbs that had been executed, and there, the non-Serbs in the area did not want to partner with this Serbian nationalist because they thought, hey, we're going to help these Serbs get into power, and then they're just going to kill us, or they're going to expel us and get us out of here. The Chetniks and Mihailovic started coming under attack from both the communist partisans and now the Soviet army. And Mihailovic really had no choice but to flee as the, as the Soviet army came in, uh, to flee until the Allies might come in and, and fight the Soviets to keep Yugoslavia. Well, it didn't happen. On the 13th of March, 1946... Draja Mihailovic was arrested by the Soviet-backed Yugoslavian communist government. He was convicted of high treason and war crimes committed by the Chetniks, and he was executed in July of 1946. He now is a mere side note in the annals of history. Most people have never even heard about this guy. The Even though the Chetniks were responsible for saving hundreds of Allied pilots, because these pilots would they'd be shot down in the area in Yugoslavia, or there'd be some kind of network set up and they would, these allied pilots would get shot down and then make, kind of make their way back into the Chetnik resistance network and then they'd be sheltered until they could be exfiltrated out of there. Harry Truman, I've, I don't know, I guess it was at some point in the 50s maybe, uh, President Harry S. Truman ended up uh, posthumously awarding Mihailovic the Legion of Merit for everything that he did during World War II. And I tell you, I just hit the 30-minute mark. In tomorrow's show, tomorrow's show, I'm going to be back less than 24 hours, 2 p.m. tomorrow. I'm going to go through my lessons learned. Lessons learned as it pertains to the coming unpleasantness here in the United States. These are my notes on, on what I read, what I think about what I read, and I'll go over that in tomorrow's show. Thanks for listening. By the way, if you like the show, you listen to the podcast or you're watching it on YouTube. By the way, if, if you want to check it out on YouTube, you just search for Out Front with Samuel Colbert. If you think the show deserves a five-star rating and review, please hook me up. Hook me up with a five-star rating, rating and review if you think I deserve it. And I certainly appreciate it. That'll help me reach more people. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of knowledge that needs to be spread around. And that's what I'm trying to do with this daily. By the way, this is why I'm doing this daily podcast. Because I can't do this week by week. I can't do a four, four hour, five hour podcast once a week. Thanks for listening. Until tomorrow, be well and stay out front.